you've heard the expression, you are what you eat. I, I heard it countless times from my mother, and uh, I think there is a lot of truth in that. You are what you eat. So, so perhaps some of you, it's not Luke. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, you're checking the lights, right? Um, so, so, yeah, you are what you eat. Um, and there's a lot of truth to it. Now, perhaps some of you have seen that movie. Um, it's a documentary. It was actually very, very popular called Supersize Me. And if you remember the movie, the premise was that a man intended uh, for 30 days to only eat from McDonald's. And the requirements were that he'd, only, he'd eat there three times a day. He would at least have all the items from the menu at least one time. He, um, anytime they would say, can I supersize that order for you? Uh, he would say yes. And uh, he could only walk 5,000 steps per day. He tried to keep it in concert with the, uh, the American lifestyle of not exercising. And so he wanted to see what would happen to his body. And uh, now there's a lot of, you know, people took issue with his um, methodology, but the point of it is, at the end of 30 days, he had various, you know, struggles with health, but he put on about 24 and a half pounds, and lethargic, and, and it just goes on and on, and you can read it on the web if you want, it's kind of interesting, people are going back and forth, but the point of it is, I think it's true, you are what you eat, at least to some degree. Now, this is true not just on a physical level, but on a spiritual level as well. And, uh, and Jesus is picking up this idea in the fourth beatitude about, about you are what you eat. You are what you're longing for. See, God is relentless for us to be satisfied in him. He wants us to be satisfied, to be filled, to be content in, in him. And he's going to explain this and lead us to this through a paradox. This paradox that only the Christian is really going to understand. In fact, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. For the fourth time, Jesus is offering us happiness and joy to those who will follow this upside-down wisdom of God's kingdom. Now, it's going to go contrary to your national notions. It's, going to, it's actually going to be very exposing of the genuineness or lack thereof of your faith. It's a simple paradox that your spiritual health will be driven by that which you hunger and thirst over in this life. Your longings, your desires are going to add to or detract from your spiritual life. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. The only people that will be satisfied are those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So it obviously begs the question, what is this righteousness? Now some think that this righteousness is an objective righteousness, a justification. This is where God will reckon to the sinner his righteousness based upon the merits of Christ. Through faith, the sinner comes to Jesus and, and, and his sins are placed upon Christ and, and God judges Christ. Christ distributes and and brings his righteousness to bear on the sinner, so that when God looks at the sinner in union with Christ, he is acceptable, he's forgiven, he's justified. He's, 
he's drawn into the kingdom. Some think that he's speaking about this righteousness, that you are to pursue this reconciliation with God. You are to pursue this justifying experience with God. I don't think he's speaking about that. That's glorious. And it's going to give fuel to what I'm saying, but I don't think it speaks to that. And here's why. Number one, Jesus, we know in this sermon, we've already seen this, is talking to those in the kingdom. He's talking to those who have already gone through the first beatitude in terms of being poor in spirit. So he's speaking to the citizen of the kingdom. Uh, Secondly, um, the verbal tense of the hungering and the thirsting are of a continuous nature. In other words, that you're supposed to keep hungering, you're supposed to keep thirsting. And if he's speaking about justification, that's not something we have to keep going after in life. It's something we live in light of, but not go after. You don't have to live this life trying to earn God's acceptance throughout your life. And then thirdly, um, each time the word righteousness is used in the Sermon on the Mount, it has to do with more of a subjective righteousness, more of a behavior, more of the outgrowth of God's righteousness in you, what you're doing. So in other words, when we say to hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus is saying that we are to long for and hunger to have a life that is lived in conformity with the will of God as revealed in Scripture. In other words, your life, your conduct is to be right with God. You're doing the things that God would have you do. Your life is lived with, with a dedication, with a devotion to God. So the values that God has are the values that you have. And the things that God would do, the things that you would do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, of course, a great London preacher in the mid-20th century, said this, he says, It is a desire to be free from sin, because sin separates us from God, and to be right with God. That's what this hungering is for. He says, To hunger and thirst is nothing but the longing to be holy. That's what he's saying. Blessed are you when you long to be holy like God. That's the call. Now, let me try to tease this out for you a bit. I want to make it very practical. There is a personal holiness that I think Jesus is referencing here. Now, remind me, I want to make sure you hear me clearly. We're not talking about just maintaining outward conformity to the law. We're not talking about when you do nice things because there are those people that are so unfortunate. This isn't about even you yearning for new spiritual experiences and new power, new ministry skills. This is a desire born out of an inward appreciation for God's righteousness to you to live with the values that are the values of the kingdom. So your life is looking like the kingdom to which you've been invited and accepted. Now, what does this look like? Well, it looks like the Beatitudes to begin with, right? Your life ought to look like. To live righteously would be to live walking in the humility that is ours as we consider the greatness of God. It it is to walk in in sorrow over the sin that we have committed. It, It is to be meek, to give up our rights in trusting ourselves to God. It is to extend mercy as we have received mercy. It is to be pure in heart. It is to be peacemakers. The Beatitudes that we're studying. 
But there's even more than that. When he's speaking about this righteousness, the next time the word comes up is in chapter 5, verse 20. And this is when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the disciples, he's saying, hey, your righteousness, what's he speaking about? Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were outward conformists to the law. And, And they would teach the people, you're not to commit Well, you're not to murder, of course. And Jesus is going to say, as we're going to study in chapter 5, verse 21 on, you know, he says, you've heard it said to not commit murder. I say to you, Jesus says, you shouldn't be angry at your brother. So a righteousness is not attained by you by just avoiding murdering people, but by dealing right with conflict. The next section, he says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Okay, that's not righteousness for Jesus but to not be lustful in your heart. Or the Pharisees would give instructions on divorce. And if you didn't get a divorce, you're righteous. He's saying, no, 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 do marriage right. Or or he says, he speaks about, he says, the Pharisees, you've heard it said about not breaking oaths. But Jesus says, make your yes, yes, your no, no. In other words, all your words are trustworthy. Or retaliation, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, 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 no. You forgive your enemies. Jesus is bringing about a radical righteousness that is to be ours because we're now part of the kingdom. So we're to pursue this righteousness. It's a profound call. But it's not just a personal righteousness. There's also, some authors say, a social righteousness. I'd call it a global righteousness. In other words, for the one to be blessed, What are we to be hungering and thirsting for? Not just a personal righteousness, but also a global righteousness. In other words, we're thinking about God's righteousness over all the world. That's what we want. That's what we're hungering for. That's what we're thirsting for. You know that prayer that we're going to study in Matthew chapter 6. It's our Father who is in heaven. May your name be hallowed. Your kingdom, may it come. Do we want his kingdom to come? Your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven is that a desire is that a longing is that a yearning for us that's the mark of the believer god i want your will done here as it's done there so it moves us to be praying and diligently god we want your name displayed to the nations we want people to see your glory we're praying for for the suffering of the world right now the tragedy in the middle east is profound is that breaking our heart over the people losing family and life. This is God's creation. This is God's world. And his righteousness is being ignored. It's being absolutely rejected and mocked and ridiculed. Do we care about the environment? Every Christian has a a theology of ecology. I mean, we're stewards. We're not abusers. We're not consumers. Or, Or the poor, the disenfranchised, the unborn, the orphans, the widows. Those are to be on the hearts of people. A global concern that we have. See, this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is both, per, is both personal and corporate. It's personal and global. We are not myopic people. As long as we're doing all right in our bubble in North Raleigh, we're great. No. No, we have a corporate, we have a, we have a global mindset, a missional mindset. Because God's glory is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the earth. And we're praying for that. We're yearning for that. See, this is the mark of the believer. This isn't a prayer that you prayed when you were four. This is the evidence. 
a hungering for righteousness. Do you realize that Jonathan Edwards, when he wrote his book, Religious Affections, he said that any mark of the believer, charity or mercy, even forgiveness and love and kindness, they can all be masqueraded by the unbeliever. They can all be, they can all be masqueraded by Satan himself. The one trait of the believer that cannot be masqueraded, it cannot be counterfeited, is a passion for holiness. It's a passion to be like God, where his righteousness is in you and through you. And this is why Thomas Watson, another 17th century Puritan preacher, here's what he said about this. He says, the true believer pursues that which is suitable and proportional to itself. What does that mean? If you have been born again and God has reckoned a righteousness to you so that you are a child, then if that is you, then you're going to want righteousness. In other words, the believer pursues that which is proportional and suitable to itself. If you have not been regenerated, if you have not been established in the righteousness of God, you're going to pursue a thousand different things. But the believer who's tasted of the righteousness in Christ He pursues that. He hungers for that. He yearns for that. So, when you understand that your desires and your longings reveal your heart, what does it reveal about you? What do you long for? What do you desire? What are you most loyal to? What are you most passionate about? If you don't know, it's easy to find out. Just ask your spouse. Ask your child. Where is your money going? Where is your time going? What do you talk about the most? I mean, ask someone close to you. Be prepared for an answer that you may not want to hear. But, but we can find out what you're most passionate about, what you're most longing for. Is it God's glory to be over the nations? Do you long for justice to be seen even in Raleigh? I mean, do you have a concern that... that, that that the poor, the disenfranchised, that they're cared for? Is this something? Do you want personal holiness? Do you want to be holy? See, Jesus is saying to hunger and thirst for righteousness is this desire that we have, both personally and globally, that God's glory would be known in and through us to the world. That's what he's speaking about here. Beatitudes get steeper as we go up the hill. But he also speaks about the intensity of the object. In other words, it's not just that you want this. Jesus is saying this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. In other words, hungering and thirsting is kind of a longing, a yearning. Now, you know, to us, this doesn't ring with the sharpness that it would if you were first century listener. You know, the first century listener, you, you, as you would cognitively understand, but I don't know that you think about it, lived on the edge of starvation. The majority of people rarely ate meat, and, and, and water was a precious commodity, not just because of its scarcity, but because of the dry and arid conditions. I mean, you're constantly thinking about satisfying this hunger and thirst. There were no Walmarts. There were obviously no refrigerators. There were no freezers. There were no microwaves. It was profoundly significant task to make sure you were fed and watered for the day. It was always on their mind. And Jesus is using this 
as a picture to display and to declare the degree of intensity of our yearning for this righteousness to be ours, coming through our lives into the world. It's a picture. We can't get along without it. That's how serious he is. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, in his sermon on the Beatitudes, says that he's speaking about a consciousness of our need. Do you know the need of our desperate need to the point of pain? You hear this in David's words in Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My soul yearns in Psalm 84 even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I mean, this is profound. This, again, is another litmus test of our faith. Do we yearn for this? This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote regarding this sermon. He says, when a man pants after God, it is a secret life within which makes him do it. He would not long for God by nature. No man thirsts for God while he's left in his carnal state. The unrenewed man pants after anything sooner than God. It proves a renewed nature when you long after God. It's a work of grace in your soul. And you ought to be thankful for it. So again, here's another litmus test. The Christian isn't identified by his perfection of righteousness, but by his pursuit of it. Do you pursue it? What is the intensity? Perhaps some of you are just coming around to understand this is even something that we ought to pursue. What is the degree to which you are pursuing a righteousness in your life and a concern of God's righteousness being globally recognized and honored and enjoyed? I think some of us here probably have been perhaps complacent. Maybe your, your desires and intensity for God to be to, to his righteousness to be flowing through your life by your actions, perhaps that hasn't been a big deal for you. And, and, and uh, it, it hasn't occupied your mind. You've been complacent. You've been half-hearted. You've, you've struggled with it. I think many of us have. As, as we look back through this, you know, one author said, there in the church is a malady of want. Now, it's not that we don't want things. We do. We're very passionate people about all kinds of things, aren't we? And we're passionate about all kinds of things. We're passionate about sports. We're passionate about sex. We're passionate about money. We're passionate people, without a doubt. But, but are we passionate about the, the righteousness of God? I think when I, when I look at a room this size filled with this many people, we can probably be carved up into three groups. Uh, two of the groups are similar but different. Two of the groups are similar but different. Uh, the first group would be the non-Christian. Uh, the non-Christian, for the non-Christian, I imagine that you probably think this is over the top. I mean, who can live this way? You've got to live, you've got to eat. This is too spiritual, it's too high-minded. You have a moral code, you live according to that code, and you feel okay. The reality of what the passage is really teaching you, though, as a non-Christian, is that we all have desires. We all have hungers. We all have thirsts. We all want things. We're all desperately to be satisfied. We want to be satisfied. We want to enjoy life. We want to be happy, and we pursue things. We pursue all kinds of things for that happiness. We pursue uh, security. We pursue relationship. 
and happiness out of that. We pursue success in business. Here's the problem that this is leading us to, is that the pursuit of, of satisfaction apart from God, you will always be struggling for the next. You'll never be satisfied. It'll always be just out of reach for you. And this isn't, this isn't just Bible talk. This is secular talk. Read the testimonies of, of the Madonnas or the Chris Everts who give word to their dissatisfaction that as soon as the victory comes, another is needed. There's a psychologist, Mary Bell, who deals with high executives and this struggle with success, that I want success. If I just get success, then I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. And and yet she says it's the new alcohol. So alcohol is not the issue in the corporate office as much as the success syndrome. Here's what she writes. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. Excuse me, you're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. And so you're working on a deal, and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem's on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually, in this cycle, you drop to the pain level, More and more often, the highs don't seem quite as high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. It's an achievement addict. It's no different from any other kind of addict. So for the non-Christian, that's the struggle. You're going to be satisfied. In a way, it's like the parable of the young son parable of the uh, prodigal son. But the younger brother, he spends all of his money on wine, women, and song. He runs out of money. He's still hungry. He goes with the pigs. But then he begins to eat the pigs. He begins to eat with the pigs and the pods. And that satisfies for a while. But even that can't satisfy. And the point of it is, God will leave you unsatisfied so that you will see only in the Father's house will I find what I need. And this is exactly what Augustine said. That 18... 1,800 years ago, that the soul is restless until it finds rest in God. So the satisfaction that we're talking about is only in God. But, but not just the non-Christian, here are the religious. When I speak about religious people, I, I'm speaking about the people that are practicing religion. They're coming to church. They're doing ministry. They're involved. They may be a charter member for all I know. And, and, and these people have moral lives. And there's a, a degree of confidence in their life. I mean, they can look around. They're not like the pimp. They're not like the prostitute. They're not like the, you know, the drug dealer down the street. I mean, you're upstanding people. You go to church, for goodness sake. You know all these things. You know the Bible. And yet there is a sense of satisfaction that just kills any desire, any thirst, any hunger for righteousness. You found God. You don't need to keep looking for him. You're done. Thomas Watson, again, the pastor I referred to, he said this. He says, these men don't hunger after righteousness because they never felt any emptiness. In other words, you're satisfied in your righteousness. You're, you're like the man. You're like the Pharisee in, in Luke 15 that looks at the tax collector and says to God, I'm glad I'm not like him. I give a tenth of all I make. I'm a religious man. You're similar but different with a non-Christian. 
you're different in the fact that you're religious and they're not, but you're similar in that you are as lost as he. You're just lost in your self-righteousness. And so the call to both is to repent. The call is to repent of either licentiousness or self-righteousness. You know the Pharisees were called to repent. John the Baptist called them. Jesus called them to repent. You need to repent of your self-righteousness and religiousness. But there's a third group here, and, and I, would, I would encourage you. I want every sermon to have a call to repent, not just for the believer, but for the unbeliever or for the misinformed believer, that you might turn by faith, placing your trust, just casting aside your self-righteousness as the dung that it is, and just pleading with Christ for forgiveness, that you might be reconciled to God through faith. But there's a third group here, and that is the Christian. And right now when you hear me preach about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and you look at your soul and you're weighted down and you feel this burden, I haven't even thought about this. I don't have a hunger. I, don't, I haven't even thought about anybody outside of Raleigh. I've only been concerned with my family. I, I haven't worried. I've, I've, made, I've made accommodation for my pet sins. There are some things that are not hurt. I've justified sins. And perhaps you're feeling guilty. You're feeling a measure of conviction. Well, thank God for that. Thank God for that. The call to you, though, is the same. Not repentance unto justification, but repentance unto sanctification. That you're called to repent so that you might experience the satisfaction that God has for you. And that's what Jesus is promising here in this beatitude. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they alone will be satisfied. Now, when he says that they're going to be satisfied, the word also means that they'll be filled. You know, you get this picture of filling in the scriptures of like the feeding of the 5,000. And it says uh, that they were full with two baskets left over. Now, if there weren't two baskets left over, you wouldn't know if they were full because you might have somebody in the crowd thinking, well, I wish I had another piece of bread. Or I could I had another piece of fish. I'm kind of leaving the table hungry. But with two baskets there, you know everybody got their full or there wouldn't be leftovers. There's a fullness a satisfaction that Jesus brings to those who are hungering to be like God, to be holy like God. There's a satisfaction, and this satisfaction really is borne out in the forgiveness that you receive and the joy that comes from that. That when you appeal to God for forgiveness, and you know that cleansing sense, that washing away of your sins, it's satisfying to know that God has forgiven you. It's satisfying to know that you have been reconciled to God. There's peace with you. You don't, the Christian no longer lives under dread and condemnation. The Christian no longer lives in fear or at least in uncertainty as to how God feels towards you. It matters not what you've done. The one who has come to God by faith in Christ, who now appeals in, in, the, in the ongoing work of the Spirit, the one who appeals to God is satisfied that yes, Christ is sufficient for that sin. There's a peace, there's a contentment that comes, a satisfaction. This is what we call sanctification. That onward change from glory to glory. You look back at your life. I look back at my life. Carol and I were talking about this in regard to the sermon and how different we are. I I joke about it with you oftentimes, saying, well, you wouldn't hire me if you would have known me. But the reality is God has changed me by his grace and for his glory. I know many of you have changed. I've seen it in the time I've pastored you. That should bring a sense of satisfaction. Thank you, God, 
that you are actually completing the work that you've started. There's a fullness, there's a joy, there's a contentment that we have from that. But not just the satisfaction that we have in this life, but Jesus is speaking future tense as well. There will be a satisfaction. We would say this is an eternal satisfaction. Oh, one day you will have full, complete satisfaction. I mean, on a personal level, you, the believer, will be glorified. The, the stain and the blemish of sin fully removed. Uh, that you will be made like Jesus when you see him. The, 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 the darkness and the destructiveness, even in your mind's memory of what your sins have caused, all of that will be removed. And there'll be this satisfaction, this joy in Christ over what he's done for you. that will be profound. But not just on a personal level, on a, on a global level. right? You know that, Romans 8. That the world's groaning for redemption. The world wants to be redeemed. The world wants that full satisfaction. Can you imagine all the unrighteousness of this world being undone and made untrue? I mean, you think about the, the Assads of today. What about the Stalins and the Pol, the Pol Pots and, and the ones following? All that unrighteousness will be undone. It will all be made right. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. I mean, can you imagine? Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 7. He gives us a picture of it. He says, never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. The sun will not beat upon you or any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, that old order of things where injustice and unrighteousness reigned, no more will it be. Because we have a shepherd who is now in the center of the throne, and he will lead us to righteousness, full satisfaction. And God will wipe away those tears that the prior unrighteousnesses brought. So we, as the Christian, we live in, in the satisfaction of today is genuine but not permanent. We still need that satisfaction. We're still hungering. We're still thirsting. We live in a kind of a holy discontent. We're happy that, God, you've drawn me this far, but I want more. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. Give me more. I'm satisfied. I want more. I'm content. I still want more. I want more of God. I want more holiness. That's where the joy is, profound joy. This is what A.W. Tozer 20th century preacher here in the States said, he wrote this, he said, in his prayer, he said, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire, O God. Triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. He thirsts for God knowing that it's only going to increase the thirst for more of God. So God is promoting this increase of thirst and hunger in you for himself. That's profound. So to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, it is you longing for, encouraged by, I want to be holy like Christ. I want to display the values of the kingdom that I love so dearly. I want to look like the one who has saved me. I want to live for the one who who organized, who selected, who elected me unto the salvation. That is the, that's the heartbeat of the Christian. The growing heartbeat. So how do you as Christians begin to cultivate this appetite? I mean, how can you and I begin to move with a greater desire 
and, and so that, that we would hunger for the things that satisfy. I mean, think about all the things that you tried to slake your thirst on this week. I mean, just go through it. It might have been a relationship. It might have been physical. What was it in your life? And is it better than God himself? Can this new piece of technology do for you what God can do? I mean, can this relationship do for you what God will do? I mean, will that increase in your pension plan do for you what God will do? So how do we increase our appetite? Well, number one, and we're going to post these on the web again. Number one would be watch what you eat. Watch what you eat. You live in a buffet, and there are myriad of opportunities for you to lust after and find satisfaction. You can hunger and thirst for all kinds of things before you. And number one, it can be physical. It can be intimacy. It can be beauty. It can be health. These things can capture our attention and, and, and try to slake our thirst so that we don't hunger for God. You know the old expression, if you have your health, you have everything? I wouldn't say that. I understand the importance of health. And I understand when, when your health breaks down, it can become consuming just going to doctors. And, and, and I know that's difficult. But at the end of the day, health is not everything. Christ is everything to us. Or beauty and the efforts and the money that would go through, the distractiveness over the pursuit of beauty, health, and intimacy is, can be very distracting and, and diluting of that passion for Christ. Oh, and not just physical, but how about financial? The effort for financial comfort and security. I, I mean, a lot of men and women have abdicated responsibilities of their family to go after that success that I just spoke about in the office. And, and, and they, they abdicate responsibilities to, to make sure that their, their wealth care is secure. I, I can't do ministry. I've got to work. I, now, I know we've got to work. I know we're in a tough economic environment. But we all know where that line is. And when is it for me? And when is it for the job? Or, or, or maybe it's fame. Maybe, maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's relationships that you want to have, that you pursue. Uh, some of you will conform your lives so as to be acceptable to whatever group that you fear. You, you actually, it's almost like you give up your personhood for that. That will not satisfy you. I mean, the toys and the joys of this world, even the good stuff, even those of you who are pursuing marriage and pursuing kids, that can be idolatrous just the same. How often can you not do ministry or can you not pursue holiness or can you not do this because I have these responsibilities. I can't do that and that's not my season in life. That is a legitimate excuse. It can be an illegitimate excuse. So, so just, just challenge yourself. You know, there's a, I read an article in Christianity Today over this Cuban pastor who ministers in Miami, and he finds that the, that the faith is very vibrant in Cuba, particularly when it was more um, repressive. And, uh, and, and people are there hungering and thirsting for God. They're under heat. They're under pressure. And then when they come to Miami, well, you get the, you get the phones, you get the papers, and you get the computers, you get the, freeze, the freezers, you get it all working. And he says, it's difficult to get them to come to church. But they're satisfied. They're slaking their thirsts on other things that will not satisfy them in the, long, in the long run. So challenge yourself. What are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you hungering and thirsting after? And, and consider the logical end of those things. Will they really satisfy? Okay, secondly, I would ask you to be considerate that this, this movement towards hungering and thirsting is to be continuous throughout your life. I think many of you, many of us, 
have found God, as I said before, and we stop hungering for God. Now, I don't know if it's because you feel, okay, once I found God, my eternal security is now wrapped up and, and it's secure, and therefore I don't need to hunger anymore. I, I don't know if that's the issue. I know sometimes I hear older believers speak about, you know, when a new person comes to faith, there's often a zealousness with their faith. They're almost over the top, excited, and kind of like they're bubbling over the glass. And the older believer will say, well, he's got to mature a little bit and temper his faith. Really? Is that what we're supposed to do? Or is that just, is that just someone who has gone passive in the faith, justifying while they're not still excited about the faith? I mean, there should be no reason that the fervor of Christ doesn't only increase. That's the idea of the text. Hungering, 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 and thirsting for Christ. And he's going to satisfy you, but you're going to want more because you're going to have them. It's like the one cookie. That just introduces you to ten more. That's what it does. A good cookie introduces you to ten more. And you get a little bit of Christ, and you're like, I want more. I want more. And that's the idea when you really hunger and thirst for him. Now, thirdly, I'd ask you to consider to meditate, fix your eyes as we sang, fix your eyes on the cross of Christ. Now listen, meditation, I know, is like, who's got time for meditation? I ain't got time for that. Hey, uh, who has time for that? We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't meditate anymore. I think about Jesus saying, consider the lilies and consider the birds. Now he's saying, look at creation as a means to see the glory of God and able to provide for us. But... Let's look at the cross. Because looking at the cross, when God looks at the cross, he's satisfied. He's satisfied because divine justice has mingled with divine grace and has brought forth a new people for himself. And so as you and I look at the cross, fix our eyes, meditate on what Christ has done, and you see that divine wrath, you see the divine righteousness bear down on our sins, and yet this divine mercy and grace as he provides a son to substitute himself for us that we might be with God forever, that feeds us and satisfies us. And that's Jesus' point in John 6 when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So, fourth, that you would consider the promises of God. These promises of God. Think about the Beatitudes with me for a minute. The Beatitudes all have promises. So he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a gift. Blessed are those who mourn. You will be comforted with forgiveness. Blessed are the meek. You give up everything, you'll inherit the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be satisfied by me. Blessed are the merciful. You will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. You will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. You will be called sons of God. And blessed are those when men persecute you. Your reward is great in heaven. All the promises. God gives us these promises so that we can, we can move away from the fatal attraction of sin. As you look at the promises of God and they begin to appear better than the promises being made by sin, then you move away. That's how we kill sin, by the promises of God. So if I'm in conflict with somebody and I want to get angry, of course that's pleasurable. For me to vent, to cut them down behind their back and say what idiots they are, there's definitely a pleasure to that. There is, but it's short term. Then it's back-ended with grief and sadness and a revelation of my own sin. But to move away from that, venting of anger, and move to seeking, seeking God 
confessing my own sins, extending forgiveness, there's a greater joy because his promise is better than the promise of sin. And that's how we overcome. Okay, fifth would be that you would enlist help from your community. You cannot hunger and thirst for righteousness in isolation. None of you here will get sanctified in isolation to others. It can't happen. All the things are one another's. You have to be in a care group. You have to be in relationships with people in your body. You have to be exposing your life. You have to be inviting people in. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's going to deceive you time and time again. It's going to harden you unless you have a brother or sister that's exhorting you to press forward, to persevere, move on, keep going. You're doing well. You faltered. Grace of God's sufficient for that. Let's move on. And and then last, I would say repentance. And I'm going to say this on every beatitude because they're going to get harder as we go along. And the reality is that we are a people that repent daily. And so I would ask you to repent. Without repentance, your heart grows hard to sin. Without repentance, you will not hunger and thirst for God. Repentance enlivens your soul. It clears the decks. That's why Paul said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He was always repenting. It's going to awaken your soul to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is a tall order. You are what you eat. You are what you hunger after. You are what you thirst after. And what is that? Well, let's pray if we can. And... um, And this is a time where we're praying corporately. So I want us to think about the corporate nature. It may be for the global concerns for God's righteousness over this earth. It may be for a a confession over my lack of concern. Maybe seeking God for grace. But if you would, I I would just want to set some parameters that I always do. I, I would ask you to speak loudly so that we can hear you. And I would ask you to speak briefly so that others may pray with you. And that way we can hear and together as a church appeal to God in response to his glorious word. And I'll start and then uh, David will close us in a few minutes. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son that has given it to us. Lord, I confess um, often my lack of hunger. Would you grant to me greater grace and grant to us greater grace that we would find the offerings at your table are far greater than that which we've been dining from.